Let's, uh, let's turn to our scripture for today. We're going to be looking at Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. It's a pretty, uh, pretty familiar free, uh, story for those of us who have been around the church for a while. Uh, and even if you haven't been around the church for a while, chances are you've probably heard this scripture passage in some way, shape, or form. Even if, even if you haven't, you've probably heard of a law called a Good Samaritan law. It comes from this. You can't escape the Good Samaritan. Thank God, right? So as we jump into our passage for today, we're continuing on in Luke. This is immediately after Jesus has sent out the 72. So this is a little bit at the height of Jesus' ministry, where people are really embracing, surrounding, and espousing that good news. They understand it. They feel it. They can't help but share it. In the midst of all of this, a, a scholar of the law, of, of religion, comes and speaks to Jesus. That's where we join in today. Verse 25, chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Don't you love that? Here you are speaking to God, God's self, and that he's like, I don't know, what do you think? Right? There's something endearing about that. The, the expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Both passages from uh, the Torah. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. You already know the answer. What's your issue? But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and so who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a particularly scary road, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving, them, ha- leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he, went, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Friends, as we treasure these familiar words in our hearts, I invite you to join me as we pray. Almighty God, as we approach your spirit and seek your face through the witness of scripture, we pray that we will get a glimpse of you, that we will see you and know you. It's hard to do that because we are easily distractible people. We like shiny things and we go down rabbit holes. And before we know it, we're writing our to-do list or thinking about the golf game we have later today. We are so unreliable. But God, you are reliable to us. You are faithful. And so we pray, God, that in this short time together, this hour that we offer to you, that you will... 
persist in us and that we might persist in faithfulness, that you might show us how to be faithful and we in turn will reflect that faithful light back to you and out into the world. May we know your truth today, even though we imperfect, we are imperfect, even though I as a preacher don't always preach that great and we as listeners don't always hear that well. Somehow, may your scripture, may your truth, may your heart be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, this story in our scripture for today, this story about this Samaritan man who stopped to help a stranger on the road, this story is another one of those stories from the Bible that often gets pulled out of its context and stood alone as some sort of mini gospel in and of itself. We've had a lot of those this series um, as we've gone through Luke. And it's understandable why this happens, because Jesus is, after all, in this moment, answering a question that even though it was asked of him 2,000 years ago by a religious expert, is still a question that persists in our society and in our culture for today. That question is this. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Which is really similar to another form of the question when it's boiled down into its most basic and raw and simple level, which is this. Do you think that I'm going to get into heaven? So for as long as our eternal geography still matters to us as Christians, so long as it matters to us where we end up forever, It makes sense as to why this passage would be pulled apart from Scripture to stand alone, right? Skip the fluff. Let's get to the good stuff. No muss. No fuss. But as with the other Scriptures that we've looked at over the last couple of months that have also been placed as standalone Scriptures, it's important for us to remember that nothing that is written in the Bible happened outside of its particular context, Though there's little doubt that the Bible is inspired and authoritative in revealing to us God's character and God's face and God's heart, no doubt about that. The truth still is that nothing in the Bible is written outside of the context of the lives and the prayers and the cultures of those ancient persons who wrote it down, which is not a weakness in the scriptures. It's actually quite the strength, but we're not going to talk about that today. We'll do that another day. What we are going to talk about is how this scripture passage about the Samaritan, it didn't fall out of the sky on tablets. It wasn't presented to a rapt audience in a sleek and polished sermon with lights and fog machines. Rather, this passage was just the product of a conversation between Jesus and a religious scholar who had asked him some questions about how Jesus interpreted the law. And this isn't some master thesis on just how righteous someone needs to be in order to receive eternal life. It's just an everyday moment where Jesus is simply explaining what heavenly righteousness looks like here on earth today in a way that this guy could understand. Now, some commentators say that this religious scholar is trying to be sneaky with Jesus, is trying to trip Jesus up with his questions or make Jesus look silly. And I'll say I don't really think there's a whole lot of evidence for that. Testing another teacher's theology isn't a vindictive act. And wanting to prove oneself in the midst of an intellectual spar is just a human state of being. That's not necessarily malicious either. 
So I think it will help all of us today as we think about this scripture. I think it will help all of us if we just remove any tone of antagonism that we make or that we read into this story. There's no value judgment that is being made between the scholar and Jesus. There is no Jesus good, scholar bad. For all intensive purposes, it's just one religious expert deliberating with another religious expert on what the law looks like. Okay, can we do that? Suck all of the antagonism out of the story? Yes? Oh, good. That said, I know that removing the antagonism that we have read into this story or have maybe are reading today or have read before, I know that removing that antagonism can be really hard for us to do because we are a society that loves to divide ourselves up into us and them or into who is in and who is out or into who is right and who is wrong. Perhaps this has been maybe more obvious in recent years than it has been in years past. And society was the same back in Jesus' day. This thing that we love to do is sorting people out into good and bad. Jesus' people love doing that too. In Jesus' day, people in society were openly tribalistic. It was a source of pride, not a source of shame. So much so that Jesus casually incorporates this tribalism into his story about the Samaritan. There's the Samaritan, there's the Levite, there's the priest, all while he as a rabbi is talking to a religious scholar. All of them represent different classes, different functions, different observances, different biblical interpretations. Tribalism was alive and well in first century Palestine, just as it is alive and well in our society today. So in the midst of his conversation with the religious scholar about how far one must go to be righteous in God's eyes, Jesus tells the story, the story that we all know. There was a man left on the road, naked, bloody, half dead. A priest sees him, crosses the road, carries on. A Levite Levite comes by next. He too sees the man, crosses the road, carries on. But at this point, I think it's really important for us to reorientate ourselves into the context and to know the direction that this story is going in when we are listening as the religious scholar was listening. Priests were men from the tribe of Levi, meaning that all priests were Levites. But priests have been designated that responsibility of overseeing the aspects of temple worship. Levite was a name given to all people who descended from the tribe of Levi, like we are Californians, or you're the Texan, or you're an Oregonian, which is one of the strangest words. Did I say that right? It's similar to that. It has more to do with the, the tribe that you come from than anything that you enact in the world. So put simply, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So when Jesus starts this story with the priest, he's starting the story with the most professionally holy person who crosses the road and doesn't help the guy. And again, remember, you promised me that we were going to remove all antagonism from this story. We don't know what that priest is feeling. We don't know what he's thinking. All we know is what he did. And the truth is, if anyone had a good excuse to not help that person, it's the priest because they weren't supposed to touch human blood. Who knows what that guy was thinking? 
All we know is what he did. So first, you have the professional holy person who sees the guy crosses the street. And then you have the guy from the holy line, the Levites. He is just this average guy from a holy bloodline. He's not professionally holy, but you know, he has some expectations upon him and he walks by too. You're starting here. You're going here to the Levite. And so then by the time that Jesus introduces the Samaritan into the story, the religious leader who he's speaking to knows it's going to be even worse. Because if the professional holy person doesn't do anything and the birthright holy person is going to avoid that half-dead guy, then certainly the Samaritan, yuck, certainly the Samaritan might just finish the guy off. So imagine his surprise when the Samaritan, the ultimate other person, doesn't put the wounded man out of his misery as we are being led to believe he will, but instead cares for him, goes above and beyond to bandage and care for his wounds, provides the wounded man transportation from his own vehicle, pays for his health care and his hospital stay. Though we have suffered from a millennia of spoilers when it comes to the Samaritan, this was the ultimate plot twist for the religious scholar. Who would imagine a Samaritan doing something good for the, for the, who? Who was that guy? We don't know. Isn't that interesting? In all of the tribal naming that is happening in this story, the identification of the religious scholar, the scholar's addressing of rabbi, to, to addressing of Jesus as rabbi or teacher, a story that includes priests and Levites and Samaritans, in all of this tribal naming that is happening in this story, there is only one man who is not affiliated with anyone. And who is it? It's the half-dead guy. It's the half-dead guy. He's the only one who we don't know belongs to who. Which is pretty tricky of Jesus if you think about it. Because in hearing this story, the religious scholar, he knew he wasn't any of the other people. In hearing this story, he knew that he wasn't the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan. Religious scholars didn't necessarily think highly of those people. So the religious scholar in the midst of this story, he's not identifying himself with any of those positions. The only one left for the religious scholar to identify himself with in this story is the half-dead man. Which is interesting because whereas you or I, we're so far removed from any of these people. We're not any of them and we know it. So you or I, we might try on the perspective of the priest or the Levite, perhaps asking ourselves, when are those instances that we have walked away from people in their most desperate time of need? We ask ourselves that when we read this story. And whereas you or I might try on the perspective of the Samaritan, asking ourselves, how do we or how can we assist people in their most desperate time of need and in what ways? We might ask ourselves that when we read this story. Whereas we have the freedom to do that, the religious scholar is forced to affiliate himself with the only character in the story who isn't labeled by any tribe or tradition that's different from his own. The scholar is forced to see this story through the perspective of the dying man. And we know that, and we know he did that by what comes next. 
Because by imagining this story through the eyes of the dead man, the religious scholar is then positioned in a place of empathy. No doubt that's why he comes to his answer so quickly, even after experiencing the shocking ending of the Samaritan who did good. From the beginning of this story that Jesus was telling, the religious scholar was seeing this story through the eyes of the man who was dying. From the beginning, he was developing empathy for the most desperate of the four men in the story and not developing empathy for the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. Empathy is what gets him to the answer that Jesus is looking for. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who had mercy on him. There's been a lot of research done on empathy in the last 20 years or so by scholars. Popular one you might have heard of, Brene Brown. She's done a whole bunch of study on empathy. And these scholars convincingly make the argument that empathy is the key to overcoming shame, to countering violence, poverty, injustice. Empathy, they say, is what forces people to break down the walls that exist between us and them, who's right and who's wrong, between the right and the left. Empathy, they say, allowing ourselves to surrender our own perspective in order to instead trust and honor the perspective of another person leads us to conduct ourselves with more gentleness, more forgiveness, and more compassion. There's all sorts of research that says it's so. And so for those of us who have been around the church for a while, Perhaps those characteristics sound familiar. Am I right? Gentleness, forgiveness, compassion. No doubt, both through scripture and as evidence through scholarship, the development and the exercise of empathy is central to developing skills of forgiveness and compassion and to developing the skill of sense-making in, in enacting justice into the world. And all of these skills are central to the Christian faith. So if you have any doubts about that, if you have any doubts that this is something that is central to who we are called to be, empathy and that development of Christian character, then all we have to do is look again at our story for today. Jesus sends the religious scholar down the narrow chute of empathy for the dying man in order to direct him for the right answer. Empathy was the chute that led to the answer about righteousness. Now that said, as research and study on the function of empathy has expanded into the mainstream over the last few years, the last couple of years have seen a lot of pushback on empathy as being the silver bullet for nearly all of our social and global problems. There's a set of scholars that are saying more empathy is not necessarily what the world needs. Psychologist Daniel Goleman uses an old sociological study to back up this reasoning in a 2017 article in Fast Company. So let me tell you about this experiment that was done, okay? In 1973, and maybe you're familiar with it, in 1973, two researchers set up an experiment at a seminary. 
Now, I always learned that this happened at Princeton Theological Seminary, but I couldn't actually find any evidence for it, but let's just say so, okay? So students at a theological seminary, we don't know what one, were told that they would be rated on a sermon. And so each was given a Bible passage as their topic. Half of the people, half of the seminarians, received our scripture for today on the Good Samaritan, and the other half were assigned just random Bible topics. So having only been given a few minutes to prepare, they were told to walk one by one from one building to another to give their sermon. And on the way, each individual passed by a man who was hunched over and moaning in pain. And the big question was, Goldman said, did they stop to help the stranger in need? And the bigger question, he said, was did it matter if they were pondering over the parable of the Good Samaritan? Did that increase their chances of stopping to help this man? I bet you can guess the answer because it's real short. No. No, none of it. In fact, rarely did anyone stop. And even then, it made a little, little to no difference at all if they were thinking about the Samaritan. Do you want to know what mattered more to the people who were walking by? What determined their actions more? It mattered more if they thought they were late. In other words, the pressure of time overruled their empathy. Here's what Goldman says about it, and he wrote this for the eye, not for the ear, but stick with me. He says this, Our espoused ethics and ability to empathize count little whenever they are superseded by what we actually do. Consider the spectrum that runs from utter self-absorption, my sermon, my to-do list, my worries, to noticing the presence of another person, lift your eyes from that smartphone, his words, not mine, to tuning in and empathizing, to then recognizing the need and then finally acting to help. That arc tracks neatly on scientific findings showing that by itself, empathy or tuning into another person's feelings or needs does not necessarily lead to caring action. For actual compassionate action, we need more than empathy which is largely passive and internally experienced. Instead, we need active concern. So put in other words, what he's saying there is what we do counts more than what we say. Our actions, he says, count more than our feelings. And we see that Jesus knows this in our scripture passage for today. After all, Jesus describes the act of taking compassion on another, taking pity on another, of the act of exercising empathy, Jesus describes it as an act. When the Samaritan is moved with pity, he is first moved. Jesus doesn't say what the priest or the Levite are feeling, not for good or for bad. Any inference that we make about how they feel about the, the dying man is determined by the actions. And my friends, that's the point. Our actions count more than our feelings. How we move is more valuable for the kingdom than how we feel alone. Thoughts and prayers only count 
when they are reflected through our actions, particularly, says Jesus, particularly our actions for the other. Friends, this isn't me saying this. Not me alone, anyway. This is what Jesus is saying to that religious scholar and says to us today. The act of of exercising empathy is first an action. Today is sort of a complicated day, my friends. I don't really know how to make sense of it. We've had a horrible week. And here we are celebrating 100 years of armistice when the violence of the world that engulfed the world went so quiet that you could hear your watch tick. It wasn't perfect. The treaty at Versailles led to World War II in so many ways. But we still find armistice worthy of celebrating because of the miraculousness that it brought in peace to an entire globe. Friends, sometimes we don't enact our compassion or our empathy because we are afraid that it's not going to have the outcomes we want. And so if that's the case for you today, as it so often is for me, then I invite you to join me in reflecting upon how Armistice offers us a good example to live by. It might not be perfect, but it might be one step toward bringing something greater than itself in. It might not solve the problem, but it might be one piece in welcoming in a new kingdom. As after we pray, I invite you to reflect in silence on the ways that God is calling you to act with your pity and compassion and empathy and to consider how peace might inform that or what peace you feel you need to inform that. In that silence, may God speak to us and may God transform us to be his hands and feet in the world today. If you will, please pray with me. Almighty God, we ask for the impossible for you to make yourself known in our lives, not just in our hearts and in our feelings, but in our hands and our feet and our actions, in our hopes and our peace. God, so often we have these great intentions, and then when it comes to doing what needs to be done in the time that it matters to do it, we find a good excuse We have a good reason. We're running late. That would break tradition. We can't touch that blood. We always have a good excuse, God, so we pray that instead you will take away our excuses and we will be people who live by the fruits of the Spirit, by gentleness, by compassion, and by love.